From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Fall is here, and as the weather cools off, the flu season heats up. (laughs) After a particularly bad flu season in Australia, officials warn that could foretell what's ahead for the United States. On today's program, we'll talk about the upcoming flu season, who should be vaccinated, and how close we are to a universal flu vaccine. Is progress being made? Absolutely. The idea is to give a vaccine that forms antibodies to the part of the influenza virus that doesn't mutate. Also on the program, a new treatment for ovarian cancer. And a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It is time to get ready for another flu season. Mm. What are the experts predicting and who should get vaccinated? On today's program, we'll talk with Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. We'll also find out how you should be washing your hands (laughs) and talk again about the reasons for getting the HPV vaccine. It is a cancer vaccine after all. Dr. Poland, thanks for... uh, Returning to the My studio. Pleasure. <laughs> We're glad you finally came back because we have a lot to talk about. We do. And let's start with the flu season. What are you predicting? Bad. Really? Bad year. Now, you can't always predict that exactly, but what we can say is the Southern Hemisphere that just finished their winter had one of the worst flu seasons in decades. Australia, particularly. Australia got very hard. And do they have the same vaccine that we're going to get? It it varies a little bit, but we're going to use a vaccine that will now be updated for next year in the Southern Hemisphere, meaning that our vaccine this year doesn't have two of those updates. So the question will be, how close of a match will there be? I want to emphasize, though, even when there's not a good match, This vaccine helps to prevent complications, hospitalizations, and death. So the recommendation is every American over the age of six months of age get a flu vaccine this year. But but aren't there some people who can't get it or shouldn't get it? Um, Are there a few with certain medical conditions? Yeah, the only people who really can't get it are people who have had an allergic reaction to it in the past. Very, very rare. And people who have had Guillain-Barre, a very unusual neurologic syndrome that occurs within six weeks of getting the vaccine. All right. Last year, less than two-thirds of American children and less than one-half of adults in this country got vaccinated. Are we going to do better? I don't know, Tom. It is really difficult, and it's not made easier oftentimes by the media who reports without elaborating flu vaccine ineffective this year. Well, what they mean is the vaccine is not designed to protect against symptoms of flu. It's designed to prevent the complications of flu, and it does that well. So if you get the vaccine, even if you get the flu, it won't be as bad, and you're less likely to have a complication. Correct. What was our flu season like last year? wasn't as bad as the year before. The year before, we had... 90,000 deaths 
and almost a million hospitalizations. So I guess what I've been thinking about is if if uh, are we following the southern hemisphere or why can't the southern hemisphere follow us? It will. Why couldn't uh, why was why did Australia why did the southern hemisphere have such a hard time when ours was relatively easy yeah, last ours year? Ours was relatively mild, but these viruses drift and mutate so quickly. I mean, literally, I have seen it where we prepare the vaccine within weeks to a month the virus changes or mutates and our vaccine is less effective. So we're always kind of playing catch up with the vaccine, the best version of the vaccine in regards to what recently has happened in the other hemisphere. Correct. Tell us about a couple of groups. Seniors, I know you've talked previously about what vaccine they should be getting. And also, do children between six months and eight years need two vaccines? Yes, good question, Tom. Absolutely. If they're between those ages that you just mentioned, they get two doses of vaccine. Now, if they only got one last year, then they only have to get one this year. We count that as two. Uh, the elderly, I hate to say, people 65 older. We call them older, older. seasoned like citizens. We yeah, call them. I like that. Yeah, they you. should get one of two vaccines, either the adjuvanted vaccine or the high-dose vaccine. But it used to be said, for example, that people with egg allergy couldn't get flu shots. That's no longer true. Is this pretty much routine in your doctor's office, or should you uh, make a point of saying to your primary care physician or your nurse, uh, uh, your provider, I want, I, I need the adjuvanted or the high dose? If you're over the age of 65, absolutely, you need to be proactive about your health care. All right. Um, complications. When people get the flu and get a complication, what are those complications? What happens? Some of them are what you might expect. Sinusitis, middle ear infection, pneumonia. Some are things you don't expect. Very high rate, increased rate of stroke, heart attack, other vascular complications. Those are really important and sometimes life-altering events, which could be prevented with flu vaccine. I just heard a story about uh, people with diabetes, how yes. important it I had never heard that connection before. Yeah, good point. Uh, people who have diabetes, in, in a sense, are immunocompromised, as are people with other medical conditions. But they have a very high incidence of complications, pneumonia in particular, and sinusitis. I bet people who have diabetes, and that population is growing all the time, but I bet they never would have considered themselves to be immunocompromised. Very good point. But they really are. Yes, they are. <laughs> the, other, the other group that you might not think about, but it's a big issue in the U.S., is people who are obese. People who are pregnant, they have very high rates of complications, and they need flu vaccine. Uh, What's the ideal time to get the vaccine? Because I read recently, and I didn't realize this, is that you can get it too early. If you get it in July or August, it it may the effects may wear off by the time flu season. I I think July, August is a little too early, but I think the October time frame and beyond, even September, is fine. Now, a new antiviral that's available that I, Zofluza, yeah. uh, let's see, Biloxivir Marboxyl, is yeah, that right? Biloxivir, yes. Yeah. And so there, the one that we previously had was Tamiflu, right. right? And is this one as good, better? I think better. And this is exciting news. This is the first time we've had a new influenza antiviral in, in decades. Um, what's important about this is it's a single dose. 
if you treat within 48 hours of symptoms, and that's an important point, within 48 hours of the typical influenza symptoms, fever, sore throat, that sort of thing, if you can get into your physician and, and get that medication, particularly if you're older, if you're immunocompromised, you only need one dose, and it decreases symptoms about 24 hours faster than the previous medications, treats all four major strains of influenza, and this is really a, this is big news. What if you have fever and a sore throat, though? I mean, do you just get to call up your primary care and say, I got fever and a sore throat? I need an antiviral? Yeah, that's I mean, the that's dilemma. like a Tuesday I sometimes. Think, <laughs> I think for most of us, when we're, uh, when we have sort of mild symptoms like yeah. that, probably not a reason to be treated. Mm-hmm. But like I say, for, um, children, for older adults, for people who are immunocompromised or have other medical problems, I think you certainly would want to just to prevent those complications. And, uh, you know, generally we wouldn't give it without doing an influenza test first. Right. So you can test and make sure yes. it is the flu. Yes. And how long does it take to get that result? You can do point of care. You can get it almost right away. Okay. So yeah. then you'd know whether or not right. to get the medication. You know, in the middle of an epidemic, might not test if they have common symptoms and just treat, but yes. All right. Give us an update on the universal flu vaccine. That's what we're all waiting for. A one-time, yeah. one-time vaccine and <laughs> good for life. Um, I, you know, that would be the ideal. I don't think that's probably going to happen anytime in the near future. Uh, you, you may be aware President Trump signed an executive order, I think it was last week actually, authorizing uh, additional research supplements to find a universal flu vaccine and to improve this because this is an annual epidemic that causes mayhem uh, every year. Is progress being made? Absolutely. There's a patch vaccine. There are uh, several injectable vaccines, notably one uh, being uh, developed in Israel, that look very promising. The idea is to give a vaccine that forms antibodies to the part of the influenza virus that doesn't mutate. Now, what will that look like? Um, I think we may have a vaccine like that in the next five-plus years, but likely you'll have to get more than one dose, but it won't be every year. Is there a skin patch now? Yes, uh, not available, but in, oh, okay. in, in testing. What about the mist? Is that available this year for yes, younger people? Yes, uh, flu mist is available actually up to the age of 49. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that, that doesn't sound so bad. So Tracy could get it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the flu mist. I like just getting the shot. Yeah, a lot of it feels like do. it's old school, and that's yeah. me. I, I forgot to ask you, is Zofluza a pill or an injection? Yes, no, a pill. So just like Tamiflu yeah. was. But Tamiflu you have to take for a few days. Yeah, you're going to take it whether, multiple depending doses. on whether you're treatment or prophylaxis. But the advantage of this is one dose. I like it. Well, we're glad you're back. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Greg Poland. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll find out how. You should be washing your hands. (laughs) And we'll tell you seven things that if you touch them, you should definitely stop what you're doing. Stop, drop, and wash your hands. (laughs) Plus, an update on the HPV vaccine. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest, infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. I, I understand that you showed Jimmy Kimmel <laughs> a fun video that we did on how, really how to wash your hands properly. It was funny. So how do you do it? You need running water. You need to get your hands wet, lather them up, get between the fingers in the depression under the thumb, 
on the tops of the fingers. This basically takes you about the amount of time it takes to sing happy birthday to yourself. And if you do that, rinse some newspaper towels and then use those paper towels to turn off the faucet and open the door of the bathroom. That's the key. So there's germs on that faucet and on the doorknob. Terrible. Really? I'm telling you, we, we did a study. And we swabbed those faucets, and we swabbed the toilet. The faucets are dirtier. Is the door handle to get out of the bathroom also it is just as dirty as the... grossly yeah. contaminated. Yeah, because they're cleaning the toilets more often yeah. than they're cleaning the handle of the... <laughs> oh. You know, one other point about this is a lot of us use, um, you know, some of the hand sprays or alcohol, foam kind sanitizers. of hand, hand mm-hmm. sanitizers. Um, and you guys have seen the same article, which is interesting and fits with what we know biologically. If you have mucus on your hands and you use a hand sanitizer, it really doesn't work very well. Mucus is the best thing you can do to protect a virus or a mm. bacteria. So if you okay. don't have mucus, uh, that is if you've touched a door handle and now you want to clean your hands, hand sanitizer works well if it has alcohol in it. Using washing your hands correctly can actually prevent some cases of the flu and some colds every year, right? Absolutely. You can probably prevent at least one episode of respiratory illness and one or two of gastrointestinal illness a year by just washing your hands properly. Studies have shown that women do better washing their hands than men. So men, you got to wash your hands properly. (laughs) Not surprised. Let's talk about the seven surfaces, the most disgusting things that Mm. we touch all of the time. You know, to just generalize it, anything that lots of members of the public are touching (laughs) are bad. Handrails, doorknobs, computer terminals, telephones. One thing on this list, restaurant menus. I had not thought about restaurant menus. And people cough into them and sneeze (laughs) into them. (laughs) Another thing on the list, of course, animals, your pets. And money. Money is contaminated with a lot of things, but among them, viruses. Now, they don't probably transfer very efficiently as opposed to, you know, think of... At the mall, that escalator handrail mm-hmm. that, that 4,000 people have touched. Anything at the uh, airport or on the airplane? Because so many people fly and so many people f- uh, fly ill, my wife and I are in the habit of we, we take an antibacterial antiviral wipe and we wipe down those surfaces when we get on a plane. It sounds, those guys. sounds like a germaphobe, uh-huh. but, but they're <laughs> not cleaned. To put this into perspective, there's actually benefit to being exposed to the routine, you know, germs that are around. I, we don't go around and sterilize every surface of our home. It's when you're out, when you're around people who are ill, that you stand the risk of getting influenza and other illnesses. All right, I want to ask you about the HPV virus, HPV vaccine. In a concerning study, researchers at the University of Texas found that both men and women in the U.S. have a limited awareness of the fact that untreated HPV, human papillomavirus infections, lead to anal, genital, and oral cancer. So this truly is a cancer vaccine. This is an anti-cancer vaccine, and it's really sad that there's such low awareness about it. Um, you get infected with HPV and develop lesions, there are no treatments. 
There's no cure. The treatments, but there are no cures for this. So this is a vaccine that prevents some seven different cancers. And if you get it under the age of 15, you only need two doses. We have such a severe epidemic of human papillomavirus that very recently the CDC and uh, ACIP have allowed that women, and in some selected cases men, can get this vaccine up to age 45. I have to just say that because in the last 20 years, I guess now is when the HPV vaccine has come along. Yeah. Is that about right? No, it's been not quite that long. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as a woman who has been having to go get, you know, go get pelvic exams yeah. for quite right. a few decades now, there has been a huge change in the way that HPV is viewed as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the beginning, when you would hear about it or your our girlfriends would be talking about it, it was like, well, that's just the... That's just the way it is. And and so I think it's interesting that for people that are in my age, you know, 50 years old, yeah. that we have had a shift of, ah, this is just something, this is just a cancer that you get yeah. versus this is actually a cancer you can do something about. You know, we have some 33,000 cases of cer- new cervical cancer a year, completely preventable mm-hmm. with this vaccine. Anal cancers. Virtually all of the oral pharyngeal cancers. Mouth and throat. Yeah, and that's not talking about the genital warts. I mean, we have a clinic here where we have young women coming in whose throats and airways are lined with genital warts, and they get lasered off. Can you imagine how painful that is? And and then then they don't go away. They keep coming back. They will come back the rest of their life. Now, who should be getting this vaccine? we got to talk to the parents. Every, everybody between the ages of 9 and 26 is eligible to get this vaccine. After 26, then we engage in what we call shared decision-making. So, you know, uh, a man and a woman who are married, monogamous, and are in their 30s or 40s, they, they don't need the vaccine at this point. But other people do and have risk factors. And, you know, in the U.S., think think of this. Every single person in the U.S. now who begins sexual activity will get infected with HPV if they're not immunized. Everybody. Most of them will resolve that infection, but we don't know who will and who won't, and a substantial minority do not and will go on to develop a cancer. If they get genital warts, which are really common, I mean, we're talking about something like 20% of the American public walking around out there has genital warts. Wow. Those are not curable. Wow. Well, thanks for the great advice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Well, the flu season is coming, and everyone over the age of six months needs to be getting the flu vaccine. What else can you do to prevent flu and colds this season? Wash your hands with soap and water, and we've just learned how to do that and do it correctly. (laughs) And don't forget about the HPV vaccine. It is important for cancer prevention. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Dr. Poland, always great to have you on the show. Fun to be here. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a novel way to deliver chemotherapy to patients with ovarian cancer. And a condition called trigeminal neuralgia. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Secondhand cigarette smoke is a combination of smoke from the burning end of a cigarette and the smoke breathed out by smokers. Exposure to secondhand smoke has been linked to cardiovascular disease, lung cancer, and an increased risk of sudden infant death syndrome. But what about exposure to secondhand electronic cigarette smoke? Now, first, let's go back to tobacco. When people smoke tobacco products, a myriad of chemicals are released into the air. It's those chemicals, not the addictive nicotine, that pose a danger. Dr. Taylor Hayes, director of Mayo Clinic's Nicotine Dependence Center, says the dangerous components are the other 6,000 things that are in tobacco smoke, and they are created because tobacco is burned. But does vape smoke have similar effects as to those who are around tobacco smoke? Dr. Hayes says that there isn't any data on secondhand vape smoke, which is actually an aerosol. He says the little particles that are inhaled by the vapor are also released into the atmosphere. And if they are an irritant to the lungs, which we know they are in people who vape, then in secondhand vaping, there probably are also irritants. With flavorings like vanilla, cinnamon, and grape, e-cigarettes may smell a whole lot better than a burning tobacco product, but that doesn't mean they are safe to be around. Now, we haven't developed the data yet to say that it's clearly dangerous, says Dr. Hayes, but it probably is. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the ovary is fortunately relatively rare, but it can be very difficult to detect, very difficult to diagnose. And some cases aren't diagnosed until the cancer has already spread to the abdomen or other parts of the pelvis. What do you do then? Joining us in studio to talk about newer and novel treatments for ovarian cancer is the chair of the Department of Gynecology at Mayo Clinic in Florida, Dr. Matthew Robertson. Welcome to Minnesota. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> Dr. Robertson, nice to have you on the program. We know that ovarian cancer is one that that women don't want to have. It's difficult to treat, difficult to diagnose. But I saw that the number of women being diagnosed with ovarian cancer is actually decreasing. That is true. According to statistics from the American Cancer Society, we are indeed seeing a slight decrease. And do we know why? No, we really don't. Uh, There are a lot of theories out there. There were tubal ligations, um, hysterectomies, some of the protective factors that we're aware of uh, may be playing a role, but at this point, we're not exactly certain. If you've had a hysterectomy, you're less likely to get ovarian cancer? Yes, sir. Oh, interesting. But do we know why that is? Well, hysterectomy itself is removal of the uterus. Uh, So you would think, how is that going to protect you if the ovary and the fallopian tubes are still there? But retrospective data looking at women who only had the uterus removed, they actually have a decreased uh, incidence of ovarian cancer. It's thought that it may somehow affect the blood supply to the ovaries, but we don't know that definitively. One of the risk factors, though, is obesity, and we hear every day that the obesity rate is greatly increasing in the country, and so then it surprises me that it doesn't seem to go hand in hand. Agreed. Hmm. Uh, some other risk factors, some other women who are at higher risk. Well, we there's two, uh, if you will, broad, overreaching themes, um, incessant ovulation. Uh, the theory there is that there's some type of trauma, if you will, to the surface epithelium uh, of the ovary. What's that so mean? That, so, in other words, when the follicle ruptures in the ovary. Follicle is the egg. Yeah, coming out of the ovary when as the ovary tries to repair itself. So, in other words, women who are ovulating more likely in their o- lifetime more may have a higher risk. Hmm. Now, 
that is one of the reasons that birth control pills, where women don't ovulate, pregnancy, breastfeeding, etc., why these may be protective. The other theory then goes into some of the local hormonal concentrations, how that may be affecting it. And then certainly, as we learn more and more about our uh, human genome, we know that ladies who have, unfortunately, either a BRCA mutation, BRCA1 or 2. A gene um, mutation. A gene mutation. Lynch syndrome. This is familial uh, colon cancer. We know there's a higher risk of ovarian cancer as well. And then with our expanding knowledge, in addition to those, we're BRIP1. Uh, RAD 51C and D, all these genetic mutations, as we learn more and more, those are placing women at higher risk. What about women who have had previous fertility treatment? Are they at increased risk? They are at increased risk. And then what about a family history? Family history can be, even if a, a, a mutation is not detected, there is some thought that indeed they may have a mutation, which we're simply not seeing at this time. So ovarian cancer becomes much more difficult to treat if it has already spread, either regionally or throughout the body. Tell us about the stages. It's always difficult for many of us to understand because there are different stages for different cancer. Tell us about the stages of ovarian cancer. Stage one is when the disease is confined to the ovary. Stage two, it's confined to the pelvis below the pelvic rim. Stage three is when it's disseminated throughout the abdominal cavity. And stage four is when it's either spread into uh, the lungs. A lot of times there'll be fluid at the base of the lungs with malignant cells or when it's within the substance of the liver, substance of the spleen, or even the inguinal lymph nodes. And very difficult to treat in later stages. How do you, uh, chemotherapy, surgery, how are the main ways to treat ovarian cancer? The traditional approach has been twofold um, in that we quite simply try to cut out as much as possible. There's very good data that... Um, The amount of disease remaining is going to determine the lady's prognosis of being cured. But even if we finish the operation when there's no visible disease, we know that there's always microscopic disease left behind. And that's why our treatment has always been surgery with chemotherapy to follow. And sometimes tell us about the more novel treatment methods that you're using now in, in chemotherapy in the abdomen in particular. So there was a study a number of years ago that uh, showed that given chemotherapy within the abdomen uh, by having a indwelling catheter improves survival. So that's a little tube that goes into the abdomen and you put the chemotherapy in that way? Yes, sir. And the problems that we ran into were just catheter maintenance. It could become clogged. It could lead to infection, etc. So it, it really was not well tolerated by patients. It was difficult for physicians to manage the complications, etc. So Fast forward, we have now learned and uh, that HIPEC, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy, given at the time of surgery, has been shown in a randomized study that came from Europe. Uh, it was published, uh, I believe, January of last year, 18, and uh, New England Journal showed that for patients who had received half of the chemotherapy of the usual prescribed dosage up first, and then went for surgery if you were able to have no residual or optimally debulked. In other words, no tumors remaining less than one centimeter. That those patients who received high 
then recovered and completed their chemotherapy, those patients had an improved overall survival. What difference does it make? I mean, it sounds more comfortable, but why should it be warm? Why does it need to be heated? Great question. Um, it's, it's mechanisms. Um, I've got a colleague uh, in Jacksonville who does a tremendous amount of this with his colon cancer as well, and it's his opinion, and I'm going to be very clear, this is an opinion, but it may have something to do with affecting the immune response within the abdominal cavity. But it's very clear as well that um, heated chemotherapy causes increased penetration into tumor. It causes apoptosis, fancy medical term for killing of tumor cells. It activates what are called heat shock proteins, which are receptors for natural killer cells. So that therefore, once again, that this is somehow hopefully stimulating the local immune response. So Have you proven that this improves survival? That study did, yes, sir. All right, prognosis overall for women with ovarian cancer. Is it improving? It is. Uh, you know, I finished my training in the late 90s, um, and at that point, our five-year survival rates were about 30%, all comers, all stages. Now we're getting close to 50%, all stages combined. Unfortunately, about 70% of all comers will at some point develop a recurrence. All right, cancer of the ovary, fortunately relatively rare, often diagnosed late. There are newer and novel treatments available to treat the disease. Our thanks to Dr. Matthew Robertson. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the chronic pain condition, trigeminal neuralgia. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we recently had a listener, as you know, contact us and ask us to do a program on trigeminal neuralgia. Mm. And we listened. We're paying attention. And so we invited two of the world's experts on trigeminal neuralgia to answer that inquiry. Joining us in studio are Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Chris Bays and neurosurgeon Dr. Bruce Pollock. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good to have you both. So tell us about this condition. And as as I recall from medical school, another name for this was tic doloreux. Is that, did I pronounce that correctly? That's right. Yeah? Uh, So what is it? So uh, some people say actually the only thing uh, that pains people more than tic doloreux is if you're a French person and you hear an American say that. <laughs> and I was afraid of that. <laughs> but I try. I'm from Nebraska, same problem. But, um, so they call it uh, sometimes tic douloureux because people get severe, short-lasting face pain and they'll sometimes wince. And it's a unilateral pain, so they kind of wince one-sided. on one side. So yeah. they kind of look like they might have a little eye tick um. or something like that. So that that's where that saying comes from. And the word trigeminal, where did that come from? Yeah, so the trigeminal nerve is one of the 12 cranial nerves, and there's three branches to it, so that's the tri part. Uh, part of it's like your forehead, the other part's your cheek, and then the other part is down in your jaw, so that's where the tri. What's usually happening to a patient that has this problem? Dr. Pollock? Well, it usually is noted when people are in their 50s or 60s. It's more common in women than men, and they begin to notice this electric shock that's on one side of their face when they're either brushing their teeth or eating. 
And so uh, for, for a while, it often goes undiagnosed or is thought to be a dental problem. Uh, but they usually trickle through and work their way to a, a good family practitioner uh, or a knowledgeable dentist and get diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia. And what causes it? Um, there's a variety of things that can cause it. Um, a small percentage of people have tumors that can re- that can cause trigeminal neuralgia, but that's on the order of 1% or less. Uh, there's a percentage of people with multiple sclerosis that will present with trigeminal neuralgia, uh, younger women primarily, and it can be two-sided in that condition. Uh, but the most common cause is a vascular compression, that a small artery is pushing on the trigeminal nerve, and each time the heart beats, it basically wears down the fatty covering of the trigeminal general nerve and eventually results in these electric shocks. You <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fixable. Okay, right. good. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, um, so I assume that people don't have this all the time. It's not a constant pain because you said a couple of things that set it off were what? Eating and brushing your teeth. Yes. Uh, so it isn't present all of the time. No, it tends to be episodic and the presence of pain that's there all the time is actually a, a bad sign in terms of our ability to make you better. And are there any, are there other triggers besides brushing your um, teeth? You know, basically any um, patients, it's different patient to patient, but touching the face or wind on the face and again, chewing or eating, sort of anything, some people you know, they bend over or roll over in bed, anything that kind of Anything where you get, uh, you know, brushing against the face or anything like that. Those, those are the main triggers. This sounds like it would be easy to diagnose then. You know, actually, the, I always tell my patients uh, when they say, well, how do you figure this out? And I just say the diagnosis is in the room. Don't get me wrong, we do tests, but it's a pretty typical history. When I walk in the room, if the patient is, you know, over 50 and they tell me they have very brief, one-sided triggered pain, and especially if they use the word like electric shock, I know that that's the right diagnosis. Sometimes it's hard because, you know, everybody's different. Not everybody reads a textbook sort of thing. And I presume that you are the one who sees most of these patients first. They're referred by family practitioners. Yeah, in general, I would say, or sometimes other neurologists when maybe, you know, the medications that are used. As a neurologist, we typically use medications and then um, get neurosurgeons involved when that's not going very well. Uh, it's really common for patients to respond to medications for a while, and then they just kind of quit working. I guess the other referral pattern is, you know, Dr. Pollock has a big referral practice because of his surgical expertise. So that's another way. Probably that's the most common way is that I see patients that are coming to see Dr. Pollock and, uh, you know, just go through the history and make sure there's no red flag. So Dr. Bruce mentioned some of those, but, you know, if it's a young patient... Um, if there's any numbness when I examine the patient, that's a big red flag. Because for typical trigeminal neuralgia, you know, they don't, when I examine them, they don't have a difference in the, I use a little pin and check sensation side to side. It sounds horrible, but just to make sure that they feel it okay. Because if they don't, that makes one of those uh, secondary causes like a tumor kind of pushing on that nerve more likely, or if it's a young patient, you worry about multiple sclerosis, which is another reason you need a good exam because those patients tend to have abnormalities on exam that we can pick up. And the medications, uh, which ones do you use, and they're pretty effective? Yeah, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, most patients get a good response to carbamazepine, which is an old anti-seizure medicine. It's also called Tegretol. And in fact, if someone gets zero response, it kind of makes me go, am I, am I sure I have the 
diagnosis correct, and sometimes I have to start over. In other words, let's just take this history over again, and um, I I tell them what they told me, and we kind of figure it out from there. But most people get response for a while. That can be months or years, but it's very common with this disorder that eventually it wears off. You add another medicine, and then what happens is a patient gets lots of side effects like dizziness and they feel stupid. Mm -hmm. These medicines we use um, have to get into the brain to work, so patients commonly get side effects and you know, one of the reasons I'll get Dr. Pollock involved is, uh, you know, the patient responds, but it's kind of wearing off, and now they're dizzy, and let's say they've fallen several times, and, you know, I know the culprit. It's not their trigeal neuralgia. It's my treatment that's doing that. And then, you know, that's when I think the the risks of a surgical intervention really start to, um, you know, sort of are balanced by the benefits, and the benefits start to be much more significant than all right, so let's assume the medications have failed. You call Dr. Pollock in. Dr. Pollock, you see these patients. What do you do? Basically, we go over their history to be sure we agree that, that things make sense to us as being a trigeminal neuralgia case and not something else. Um, the imaging is important because we do want to rule out these secondary causes. Uh, but assuming all that's come true and either the medicines have stopped working or you can't tolerate the medications, then we sort of go through the different surgical options that are available. Um, the best surgery that we have in terms of outcomes is where we go in and actually move the blood vessels away from the nerve. Um, it is a, a small craniotomy, uh, so we make a small opening behind the ear, and we don't go through any brain, but we work in these natural water sacs that we have to go down and see the, see the trigeminal nerve and mobilize a small artery off the nerve and then put some padding in to keep it away. Uh, the surgery is known as a microvascular decompression. Uh, it typically takes us about two hours, and the hospital stay is typically two days. But, but you have to go through the skull to get Yes, that. it is an open surgery. So the incision is behind the ear about an inch and a quarter. Um, the benefits of that surgery, if you compare it to anything else we do, uh, its success rate is higher. Its durability is better. Most people wake up from surgery, their pain is gone, and we can taper them off their medications within a few, a few weeks. And we're not obligated to make you numb to make you better. If we get away from that approach, every other surgical option that we do is based on damaging the nerve. So you're basically trading pain for some degree of nerve dysfunction or numbness. And so we have a variety of operations where we take a, a needle from your cheek, guide it up to the nerve, and once that needle's in a correct location, you can burn the nerve, you can crush it with a small balloon, you can put some medicines by it to damage the nerve. Um, they're relatively simple surgeries, and they tend to be done for people in their 70s and 80s. The benefit there is it works very quickly. The third option is we often use radiosurgery, which is directed radiation onto the nerve. It's another method of damaging the nerve using the energy of radiation. Um, the biggest downside to the radiosurgery is it usually takes a few weeks to even a month or two to kick in. And so for someone that shows up who has terrible pain, that's having trouble eating and drinking and maintaining hydration, we typically don't think of radiosurgery as a good option. So we meet with people and go through the different surgical approaches. Uh, in a given year, uh, the majority of people I operate end up having a microvascular decompression. Uh, but the other two operations certainly serve a role, and we do quite a few of those as well. All right, there you go. Hopefully everything our listener wanted to know about trigeminal neuralgia. A chronic pain 
painful condition that affects the trigeminal nerve, the nerve that carries sensation from your face up to your brain, more common in women, usually over the age of 50. Treatment usually starts with medication, and most all the time they are effective, but if they are not, a couple of other options, maybe Botox, but certainly surgery. Our thanks to Dr. Bruce Pollock and Dr. Chris Bays. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thanks much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this day for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.